prison is awful. Now, I've never been to prison myself, just to be clear. Okay, I want to make that very, very obvious up front. I've never been to prison myself. But I do watch a lot of prison shows on TV. So I'm basically an expert. Now, most of the prison shows that I've seen are filmed in the States. I haven't got a chance to see a Canadian prison show yet. I'm wondering if they exist. I'd love to compare the differences and the similarities, you know, between the two systems in the, in the U.S. and also here in Canada. So if any of you guys happen to know when Lockup Saskatoon airs on the CBC, let me know, because I want to see that. I'd be very interested in watching that show. One of the things that I've learned from prison TV shows is that Although there are certainly tense moments behind bars and sometimes even violent moments, the number one thing that inmates have to deal with on a daily basis is the monotony of their daily routine. It is total boredom for them day in and day out. Like, think about it. When you're confined to a six foot by nine foot cell day after day for years at a time, there's only so much you can do to pass the time. There are only so many books you can read. There are only so many letters you can write. There are only so many push-ups you can do in a day in order to uh, pass the time. Now, if you needed any further evidence that I have never actually been in prison, just look at these arms, okay? I have never spent a day on the yard pumping iron. That's completely obvious. I have done a little bit of prison ministry over my years as a pastor, though. And I've got to talk with inmates and former inmates And time and again, the thing that they say that they struggle with, the most difficult part of serving a jail sentence is the monotony, the total boredom of their day-to-day lives. It's like they know that there's a better life out there. They know there's more to living than what they're experiencing, but they can't get to it. Their lives are essentially on autopilot as they wait for the clock to run out, as they wait for the opportunity to move into a new stage for something different to finally happen. Every prisoner you could ever talk to would tell you they're living a very hollow version of life. Now, I think if you and I are honest, our lives feel that way some of the time. We know that there's more to life than what we've been experiencing. We know that there are bigger and better things And yet most of the days, it feels like our life is just passing us by, like the clock is running out. And there's this sense that we were created for something more than what we're currently experiencing. And yet we can't quite grab a hold of it. We can't quite reach it. You know, it's like we're stuck in this endless cycle of soccer practices and department meetings and monthly bills and the yearly iPhone refresh oh my gosh, did you see it's shiny black this year? It's like, that's the highlight of what we're looking forward to every year. How crazy is that? We live in a world where we know we've been created for something meaningful, and yet most of us don't feel like we live a very meaningful life. Hey, do you know that's why people like apocalypse movies so much? The reason that people love the thought of a zombie outbreak happening or, uh, you know, an EMP attack from a rogue nation or an asteroid colliding with Earth. The reason that people engage with those stories so much is because if a scenario like that happened, it would force us to reevaluate what we live for. It would force us to ask, why do I chase after everybody's approval? 
Why does it matter what I drive? All the petty things that used to bug me in light of something big like that happening, they wouldn't seem so important anymore. That's why people actually enjoy watching films like that, because they remind us we were created for something more than what we're currently living for. You see, the thing that no one ever tells you about growing up is that life stages tend to get longer and longer, and they get fewer and further in between. When you're a kid, there are all these new stages, and they come really quickly, right? Every three to five years, you're moving on to something new. So you're born. That's a pretty big life stage. Then you say your first words, and you take your first steps. You go to preschool, and you graduate from preschool. You go to elementary, and you graduate from that in a few years. You move on to junior high, and then you go to high school. You become an adult. You move into your college ages. You find a person that you want to spend the rest of your life with. And that all happens like in the first 20 years of your existence. It comes really, really fast. But after you find somebody that you fall in love with and you want to marry, things start to change. Stay with me here, okay? I don't mean that in a bad way. You start making commitments that are not three to five years at a time. You start making commitments that are for life. You say to your spouse, till death do us part. I guess marriage is a bit of a life sentence in some senses. You start making these commitments and they go on for a really long time. You say till death do us part to the person you want to marry. And then you have kids. And best case scenario, this stage of your life is going to last 18 years if you only have one. Some of you guys were crazy enough to have four of them spread out over seven years. You guys are looking forward to 25 years of the same general routine while you wait for the kids to grow up and finally move out of the house. One day, that glorious moment arrives. And then maybe you get to retire, you know, you, you, you put in your time at your job and you saved up some money and you get to retire and you're like, all right, here we go. Finally, the life stage I've been waiting for. Now good things are going to happen. I'm going to get to relax. I'm going to get to enjoy my life. But what then? After you retire, you get to look forward to, if you're lucky, a little bit of traveling, probably a lot of gardening, getting up three times a night to go to the bathroom. Like it's, it's like it's a wonderful part of life, but even still... It doesn't quite feel like you're living up to your potential. In 30 seconds, I just summed up our entire existence. And when we look at it from that big picture view, or when we're swimming midstream, we're just going about our daily routine, it is very hard to believe that we can experience more than what our life is currently offering us. I want to be clear here. I really want you to understand, I'm not saying that your life is a jail sentence. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. I hope you guys don't leave here being like, dude, that guy was a downer, all right? I don't want you to think that. Your life is not a jail sentence, although you might feel a little bit like a prison guard. You know, when your kids are grounded and you're trying to make sure they're not sneaking around and stuff like that. I would just encourage you not to refer to your life using any sort of sentence, imagery, or language, okay? Don't call your wife the old ball and chain. That's, that's a bad idea. You know, that's an old prison image, right? We used to take prisoners. We would shackle them to a big giant iron ball so they couldn't get away. And then some really funny husband decided to start referring to his wife that way. I would strongly encourage you not to do that. If I said that, my wife would punch me in the throat. <laughs> if you said that, my wife would punch you in the throat. Fair warning, okay? <laughs> It's just a bad idea. Your family, 
your jobs, they're not shackles that hold you down. That's not at all what I want you to leave here thinking. But I do want you to realize that it is so easy for us to slip into a daily routine that becomes a weekly routine, and before we know it, we've lived a routine life. Nobody sets out to live a routine life, and yet that's exactly where most people end up. So no wonder we find ourselves asking, is this as good as it gets? Is this all there is to my life? I have nearly everything I thought I would need in order to be happy, and yet most days I feel like everything's just passing me by. Like I'm doing time. I'm running out the clock. I'm waiting for something to come along and shake things up because I don't feel like I'm living for everything that I was created for. Here's the other thing that I know. I know that you spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about the decisions in your life that you didn't make. You think about how different your life could be if you had married that guy instead of this one. You think about how different your life would be if you had taken the job there instead of the job here. You wonder, man, how different would things be right now if I had finished my degree instead of dropping out early? Some of you started sweating when I said that. You're like, how does he know that about me? I know that about you because everybody in the room does the exact same thing. You're not a bad mom or a bad husband because you have those thoughts. In fact, you're completely normal. It's kind of evidence that you're living a life that isn't up to the level that you were designed for, that there is something more than what you've currently settled for. I think we can experience a meaningful, purposeful life, and I think the answer is found in the Scripture. We're going to read a story here from the New Testament, from the book of John. And in this story, Jesus has been walking around the countryside in ancient Israel, He's been teaching people about God for three years. And one day, he comes across a man, and this man is in a bad situation. In fact, this man basically feels like his life is over. There's no hope that things are ever going to get any better. And when he encounters Jesus, he has no idea how much his life is about to change. So let's look at this story here. We've got it on the screen if you guys want to follow along there. It's John chapter number 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. In John chapter number 9, verse 1, the scripture says, As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. So this story starts with a man who has never seen. He's never seen colors. He's never seen people. He's never seen landscapes. He has never had his vision from day one. He was born with blindness. Now, here's the thing. Blindness is like a really tough disability in any context. But in ancient Israel, this would have been especially hard to live a life with. I mean, think about it. In their day, there were no assistance organizations. There were no guide dogs. Blind people were not able to work. So basically, they relied on the generosity or the kindness of their family, their friends, and strangers. Here's what happened to most blind people, and this is exactly what was going on with the man in this story. They would have a friend or a family member every single day that would take them from their house and lead them to a busy market. They would set them down on the side of the road, and they would beg all day long from passersby. So that's exactly what this guy is doing. When Jesus encounters him, he's sitting there, he's begging, he's 
got an incurable condition. He has almost no hope that his life can get any better at all. He is the definition of somebody who is simply doing time. But I want you to notice what the Bible says. Verse number one, it is really important. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw the man. Jesus saw him. Not saw him like the hundreds of other people who walked by and and just kind of glanced past him as they went on about their business every day. Jesus noticed this man. The scripture goes to, to lengths to actually point out that Jesus sees him in a way that no one else does. When nobody else took notice of this guy, Jesus saw him, saw his condition, saw who he was as a person. Jesus saw him. Now, I want you to hold that thought in your mind because it's going to be important here in in just a moment. The scripture goes on in verse two. The disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Oh, the disciples. (laughs) These were like guys who traveled. There were 12 of them. They traveled around with Jesus for three years. They were basically his students. They were his apprentices. They were supposed to be learning from Jesus so they could could carry on his tradition one day. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it doesn't dress up the facts, okay? It kind of presents the story the way it actually happened. If this were made up, if the disciples were writing this story about themselves years after it happened, they would not have made themselves look like idiots as often as they do in the Bible. They say the most boneheaded things you can possibly imagine. Like in this case, there is a disabled, impoverished man sitting on the side of the road begging from people. And within earshot of him, the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, whose fault is it that that guy over there is blind? Did he screw up or did his parents? It was a terrible question to ask. Jesus is like, guys, he's blind. He's not deaf. Ah, Keep it down, you know? It was an awful thing for them to ask. There was a debate going on in ancient Judaism. There were questions about why things like this happened to people. There was one group that said, oh, well, this is punishment from God, and it's punishment on the man's parents. They must have committed some sort of sin. They did some sort of wrong, and so God is punishing them with a blind child. I hope I don't have to spend a lot of time convincing you that that is a terrible view. That is not the God of the Bible. That is not the reason things like that happen in our world. But that's what some people in the ancient world believed. There was another group that said, come on, guys, that's stupid. God doesn't punish people for their parents' sins. He only punishes us for our own sins. And so they believed that for this man to be born blind, he must have committed some sin on his own. But that raises some interesting questions. Like he was born blind. So when did he sin? And this group, this second group, they actually believe the man must have sinned at some point as a fetus in his mother's womb in order to have been punished, all right? I think there are good reasons why bad things happen to good people. Neither one of those are on display here. But we're not going to judge these guys too harshly. These were pre-modern people. We're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. We're going to say, hey, they were doing the best that they could with the information they had. They didn't know anything about biology or prenatal development or anything like that. But here's what I want you to focus on. Here's what I really want you to get out of this. The disciples didn't want to talk to the man. They wanted to talk about him. When Jesus saw him, he took notice of him as a person, as an individual. The disciples are just bebopping along. They don't see a person to be loved. 
they see an issue to be debated. Now, here's the thing. Religious people have struggled with that for a really long time. But when you read the Bible, you find out that Jesus never had that problem. He never saw people as a list of their circumstances or their failures, their shortcomings, and their sins. He never wanted to talk about people. He always ended up talking to people. And it's a huge, critical, important difference. Because some of you guys have been a part of churches. You've been a part of offices. You've been a part of mom's groups where it seems like people want to talk about you rather than talking to you. Where where you just really want to be known. You want people to take notice of you. And yet it seems like everybody is just passing you by. And nobody ever really does take notice of you. Can I say that Jesus sees you even when no one else does? Even when the world is passing you by, when you're just a face in the crowd, when you're just a background character in somebody else's story, Jesus sees you. And he sees you in a way that no one else can because he's the one who created you. He's the one who gave his life for you. Jesus sees you. Because Jesus sees you as a church, we want to do our best to take notice of you too. You're not just a face in the crowd here today. You're a person with a story. We want to hear your story. We want to get to know you. We want to share our lives with you. We want to follow Jesus' example and talk to you rather than about you. The disciples wanted to have a discussion about this man's circumstances. But Jesus had a different plan. Look at at here at verse number three. Jesus answers and he says, it's not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Come on, guys. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. Then Jesus goes on to say, we must quickly carry out the tasks that have been assigned to us by the one who sent us. He says, we've got to do the work that God gave us to do. For the night is coming when no one can work. He's basically saying, one day I'm not going to be here, and you're not going to have the same opportunities that you did. So he says, while I am here, I am the light of the world. Jesus' response is absolutely brilliant. This is the reason that I'm a Christian. It's because of what I see Jesus doing time and again in the Bible. When the disciples want to discuss this man's problem, Jesus wants to focus on his purpose. He says, listen, this happened. This man's life is here for a reason. It's so that the glory of God could be revealed in him. You see, according to Jesus, his condition is not what defines him. His creator is what defines him. From Jesus' perspective, his purpose is realized and then his potential is unlocked. He becomes who he was created to be when he recognizes his relationship with God. And what's true of him is really true of every single one of us. The key to breaking out of the monotony of a daily routine, the key to living a meaningful, purpose-filled life day to day is to know and understand your purpose. If you can know and understand your purpose, then you will have the life that you've wanted all along. So here's what I hope you'll do. I hope that this week, you'll spend a few moments asking yourself the big questions that you've been avoiding asking yourself all these years. I want you to ask the question, why am I here? Do I believe that I have a purpose in this world? 
And if I do have a purpose, what is it? What is my reason for being here? You can call it meditation. You can call it self-reflection. You can call it prayer, whatever you want, but you owe it to yourself to try to identify what you think your purpose is here on earth. Because until you can wrestle this question to the ground, until you can say, I know why I'm here, I know what my life is meant for, then the best you can hope to do is simply do your time. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I've had this conversation with like hundreds of people over the years. I've asked lots of people, what do you think your purpose is? And, And people usually respond in one of two ways. Either they'll say something like, look, if we have a purpose, I don't really think we can know what it is, which to me seems like an incredibly bleak outlook on things. When you look at your kids, you don't think, well, there's no purpose in their life. You, you think that they, they, they exist for a reason. There's some meaning. There's some purpose. There's some design behind your kids' lives. And if it's true of them, why isn't it true of you? Why isn't it true of the rest of us? Nobody wants to live in a world where there is no purpose, where there is no meaning or value behind our existence. The second way that people often respond is they'll say, okay, well, I think my purpose is to be a good mom. Or I think my purpose on earth is to be a faithful husband. Or my purpose is to leave the world a better place than I found it. And those are wonderful goals. I hope that you accomplish all of them. I hope that you're a good mom. I hope you're a faithful husband. I hope you leave the world a better place than what you found it. But can I just say that goals are not the same as purposes? Purposes are more fundamental. See, goals are tied to what you accomplish with your life. But purpose is tied to who you are. It's intrinsic. It's fundamental to your existence. And so if you define your life by what you accomplish, what happens if you don't accomplish the things that you set out to? So let's say your purpose is to be a good husband. It's a wonderful goal. But let me ask what you'll do if, God forbid, your marriage falls apart. It happens. And so if your purpose is to be a good husband and you're no longer a husband, what does that say about your purpose? Do you not exist for a reason anymore? Well, of course you do. You'll have to invent some new reason to exist. If your purpose is to leave the world a better place than what you found it, can I ask how you ever know if you're successful? How are you going to know if you left the world a better place? Have you been keeping a running list of all the good things you've done since you were born and all the bad things that you've done? I doubt it. None of us really have. And then, like, what are the metrics? How do we measure? How do we pit this good thing against that bad thing? Like, it just seems to be an incredibly vague notion to base our entire lives around. I think that you were created for something more than simply what you can accomplish. I think that your purpose is tied to whose you are, not who you are, not what you accomplish in your day-to-day life. This man's purpose was unlocked when he came into contact with Jesus. I'm not asking you to believe that for yourself. I'm really not. But I am asking you to spend a few moments honestly identifying why you think you exist then in this world. I think you owe it to yourself, to your family. If you come to an answer, it'll make you a happier, more fulfilled person. If you realize, like I did, that I wasn't living for anything meaningful, then hopefully it'll get you on a better track. Verse number six, we'll wrap up the story here in the next two verses. The Bible says, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. Okay, this just got weird, okay? 
Jesus Spit is like a great name for a punk rock band, but I don't think anybody expected Jesus saliva. Nobody was like, oh, Jesus is going to lick his thumb and rub it on the guy and he'll be like, nobody was expecting this to make any difference whatsoever in this man's life. So what's up? Like, why did Jesus do it this way? It's really weird. Was he just showing off? Was he like trying to communicate something? I think everything Jesus says and does has a purpose behind it. I really do. And what I think is going on here, although the reference is a little bit lost to us in the 21st century, a Jewish person from the first century that witnessed this, they would have no trouble making the connection that Jesus is trying to draw here. See, if you go all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter number two, the scripture says that God formed man out of the mud of the ground. Now, some people believe that story is literal. Some people believe it's symbolic or allegorical. It doesn't really matter at this point. Jesus is making a connection back to that story. He's tying both himself and this man to a bigger story that God is telling throughout history. He's saying like Adam, this man was created on purpose for a purpose. And again, if it's true of him, there's no reason that it shouldn't be true of you and I. We were all created on purpose for a purpose. Jesus wants to reveal that purpose in your life. He wants to give you meaning. He wants to give you hope. He wants to give you the answer and the purpose that you've been looking for for your entire life. You can search for it in a bunch of different places, but I'll just tell you, unashamedly, we believe the answer to a mundane, routine, boring, day-to-day life is found in Jesus. I didn't know this story growing up. I wasn't raised in church. Grew up in a home that had a lot of poverty, drug addiction, alcoholism. I didn't go to church as a kid. I didn't get saved and give my heart to Jesus until I was like 17 years old. And so the truth is, I thought most of this growing up was fairy tales that people made up to make themselves feel better. That was my view. That all changed the day that I realized I was created for more than what I had settled for. And like this man, it happened to me the day that I met Jesus. We want you to begin new life with Christ. We believe he is the one who can give you purpose, meaning, fulfillment, happiness on a scale that you never knew was possible. At Connect Church, we call it the overflowing life. It's the entire reason that we started this church so that we could introduce our neighbors to the life that we've found in Christ. We think you discover your purpose, you live the meaningful life that you've always sought when you do four things. When you know God, when you find freedom, when you discover your purpose, and when you make a difference. When, when a life has all four of those elements, man, it is alive in a way that we really don't even think is possible. There are people who do one or two. There are people who maybe know God, but they never make a difference in our world. There are people who make a difference, but they never find freedom. When you do all four of those things, you have that meaningful life that we've all been seeking after, and it's found in Jesus. So let's look at this last verse here. Verse seven, Jesus says, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So Jesus, so the man went rather, and he washed himself and he came back seeing. He had his sight restored. Now, if you're new to the Bible, 
this, like the matter of fact way that they present miracles like this, it, it might seem a little suspicious, okay? And I get that. Again, I wasn't raised in church. So when I read this stuff, I'm like, come on, seriously? You might be sitting in your seat today and you say, Dan, do you really believe that Jesus was able to give this man his sight? And the short answer is, yeah, I do. The long answer is, we do miraculous stuff in our world every single day. You live in a world where miracles never happen. I live in a world where they happen every single moment. We can take a laser, a beam of light, and shoot it into somebody's eye. And though they've been blind essentially their entire lives, in just a couple of seconds, we can correct their vision. I read a story the other day about a kid in China who had an accident with fireworks and he lost his vision. And doctors took a cornea from a pig, like the farm animal, a pig, and they transplanted it into his eye and he regained his sight. As far as I'm concerned, that's a miracle. Like, I can't explain how Jesus did what he did here, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. I can't tell you how they transplanted a a cornea, but they did. So we're always going to approach the Bible with a bit of humility. We're going to say, hey, there are things that happen in our world beyond our explanation and control constantly. And so at least we'll give it the benefit of the doubt. We can have a real conversation about meaning and miracles and the purpose and existence of them, but we're going to give it the benefit of the doubt this morning. And what I want you to see here is that Jesus' miracle starts weird and it ends weird. It starts with mud and spit in the eyes, and then it ends with him telling this man to go wash himself in a pool. It's so important that you realize, at this point, Jesus had not healed the man's blindness. When he told him to go, he was still a blind man. And Jesus said to him, I want you to walk all the way to the other side of the city, and I want you to wash your eyes, and then you'll be able to see. It's like Jesus did his part, and then he gave the man his own part to play in the process. I wonder what would have happened to this guy if he had just gone back to his old routine. Like if he had just gone back to his old way of life, if he had said to his buddy who had taken him out in the morning, look, I'm intrigued by this whole Jesus thing, but it's a little weird. I'm going to be honest. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have you take me back home. I don't think this is going to work. And if he had just gone back home instead of going to wash in the pool, I honestly believe he never would have experienced the healing that God had for him. It'll be very easy for you to leave here this morning and to slip right back into your routine. It'll be really easy for you to say, well, that was interesting, but I don't know if it's for me. And you'll go right back to living for whatever purpose you invent for yourself. Can I encourage you to just take a step? Take a step towards God. Take a step towards faith. I'm not asking you to become a Christian. I'm not asking you to become a religious nut job. I'm not asking you to do anything like that. I'm asking you to take one small step of faith. For some of you, that small step might simply be asking the question this week, why am I here? What is my purpose? Why do I exist? You'll spend you know, five or 10 minutes this week talking about that. That'll be five or 10 minutes more than you spent last week. So it would be a step in the right direction for you. Hey, maybe your step is to commit to coming back next week. You say, okay, well, you know, this wasn't half as weird as I thought it would be, so maybe I'll come back. Some of you guys might think, I don't know if I want to come back week two. That's probably when they're going to break out the Kool-Aid, right? Uh, That's more of a week five or six thing, okay? So you're good next week. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. My prayer for every one of you, whether you've been in church since the day you were born or this is the first time you've ever set foot inside of a church service, my prayer for you is that you would discover meaning and purpose for your life and not simply do your time.